we've been talking about the book of Genesis. We started in chapter 1 and we uh, have been making our way through. We're up to chapter 3 now. And I think that the book of Genesis is uh, one of those books, it's, it's a magnificent piece of literature. It is a magnificent expression of God's word and will for this creation, for what he has made. But it's also very much misunderstood, kind of like the book of Revelation. It's uh, one of those books that you can just get into and be totally and utterly confused. And what I've told you uh, is that the mistake we make, I think, is trying to make the book of Genesis say things that it does not say. In other words, we're looking to Genesis to give us answers to material origins, to science. And it's not speaking scientifically. It's not even hinting at scientific uh, origins or material origins of the universe. It's doing something completely different. On the other hand, science has nothing to say about God. And don't any of you kids that are getting ready to go to college, uh, don't let any professor tell you that science and the Bible contradict one another. They absolutely do not. Unless you ask science... Uh, to try to prove or disprove or empirically give evidence for the existence of God, which it cannot do. You can't put God in a test tube and find out if he's there. And the Bible doesn't say anything about scientific things either. It's talking about other things. And if you pit them against each other, somebody's going to lose. But if you don't, if you start asking questions of people that make those types of claims, you will open up presuppositions that are really uh, pretty dramatic. And if you want to know more, you can come to the uh, 9 o'clock Q&A, and we're talking about things like that in, in, in there. And I'll be happy to answer questions. There's no dumb questions about Genesis. Genesis is a magnificent uh, book and expression of God's word and will to his people, as I've said. The book of Genesis... One commentator said that the beginning is pregnant with the end. And if you look at the two bookends I've shown you every week, here's the first three chapters of Genesis. Just this little bit, couple pages. And then here's uh, Revelation 21. Here at the very end of your Bible, couple pages. And everything that's in between has to do with what happened over here on this side, this is Genesis, and what is going to happen over here in Revelation. It doesn't answer every single question that you have, but it will answer many. It talks about evil, suffering, pain. It even answers the question, why are we as human beings, why are we asking those questions? I don't know that my dog, uh, Diesel, and my other dog, Muggs, well, I know Muggs doesn't because he's a knucklehead, he's a boxer, uh, but the other one's pretty thoughtful. And I don't know if he sits there and contemplates, you know, why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Why is there, you know, I don't know. He knows why is there not food in my bowl. (laughs) I don't know about the other things. But human beings do. And we have to ask ourselves, why are we we conscious of these things? And so just to recap, very quickly, I'm going to run through this fast. With respect to the serpent, the first seven verses of Genesis... We have taken the position, and I'm going to take the position, that this is a historical event, that the serpent is real, that Adam and Eve were real, they're real people, they're in a real garden, but 
the text is highly literary. It is not just raw, literal. It's very literary. There's poetry. There's symbolism. There's, there's things that are going on that the ancient world would have understood and that the future world, 2,000 years from now, if we're still in existence, human beings will be able to read this story and it will make complete sense, as it does, unless you impose on it scientific, scientificism. If you want it to say things, it doesn't say. So we're not doing that. It is literal, but it is literary. Human speech and the image of God that was given to humanity was meant to create, to be creative, to fill and to form the universe with beauty, with diversity, with abundance, with truth. And man was given everything he needed by God's Word and by God's Spirit to go into the formless and void, the tohu v'bohu, the emptiness and void, and to spread the garden out to the entire face of the earth. That's the story. The serpent comes in, as we saw last week, and notice she does not see the serpent. She hears him. Very important. He's not talking scientifically. He's not saying, well, what was it? A rattlesnake? A boa constrictor? What was it? it it's not that. The serpent, Nahesh, was a symbol of all kinds of things in the ancient Near East. And one of them was it was the adversary of God and the adversary of humans, and the tempter, and the accuser. And she heard him, and he said something to her. And this has been the problem with humans ever since. Folks, listen to this. If you didn't get this last week, make a note, because this is your life. I guarantee you, whether you believe it or not, this is the human uh, experience. First of all, the serpent says, did God say? That is to question. In other words, we have lots of questions. And God does not oppose to your questions. What He is opposed to is you saying, my word, God's word, is subject to your judgment. When we get into that place where we're saying, you know, I don't think I agree with you about murder. I don't think I agree with you about adultery. I don't think I agree with you uh, about life and death and uh, all that. I don't think I agree with you about human nature, about the image of God. I don't think I believe. I think I can come up with my own truth. I think truth is whatever I want it to be. Right? Okay, well, that's not okay. You know what? He's still God and you're not. And if He says something, we must abide by that in humility and love and out of respect for Him the same way we would expect our children to respect and love us and for what we say and what we do for them. Unless you're a nutty parent. Look at the next thing He does. In verse 2 and 3, He distorts the Word of God. She distorts the Word of God. This is the second problem we have. Not, she answered Him and says, no, we, we're not supposed to touch it. We're not supposed to eat or touch unless we die. And she leaves out the word surely. We're not surely going to die. She minimizes it. So what she does is that, and we do this every day. People do this, especially in Christian uh, circles. We say too much. We say too little. We either start minimizing, relativizing the word of God, or we say more than it says. And that is something we are not going to, to do here. We're going to try our very best 
Let, the, let it say what it is. So Eve says too much, not supposed to eat or touch. Devil, uh, unless you die, then she says too little because dying, you're going to die. But she minimized it. He comes back bold-faced, bold as brass. You will not die. He contradicts the Word of God. A direct challenge. And every one of us face that every single day with every choice we make sometimes. We know God's Word says no. And what do we say? Well, does it really say that? Does it really mean that? Maybe it's not that bad. Let me try. Let me stick my toe in and see how hot the water is going to get. Listen, you're going to get scalded. Okay. He just comes right out. Then he deceives. He offers an alternate truth. That's in verse 5. When your eyes are open, in fact, what he says is true. When your eyes are opened, you'll be like God, you'll know good and evil. All of that was absolutely true, and they did. The problem is, folks, we were not created to have that knowledge, to handle that knowledge, to be able to negotiate that knowledge with wisdom and righteousness because what we ended up doing with the knowledge of good and evil, you will see. We destroy each other, our marriages, our families, people, races, the planet, name it. We have been destructive. On the other hand, we have also been highly creative. Man is still imbued with the glory and the image of God. And we do amazing things. We cure disease. We feed hungry people. We do. So there's this tension that exists now that didn't exist before. But it's not God who put that tension there. He told us, choose life. And I gave you the stunning quote from Dr. Kidner. She saw. She took. She ate. So simple the act. So hard its undoing. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, would have to taste death and poverty before the words taste and eat would become words of salvation. You see, Satan said, taste and eat, take and eat the fruit and you'll be like God. And Jesus said, come to this table Take and eat, and you will live. I'll give you life like that tree. I'll bring you eternal life. Me. Me for you. Pretty extraordinary. Their eyes are open in verse 7, and guilt immediately comes. I did something I told you last week. Guilt is, I broke a law, I broke a rule, and guilt is, I did something bad. But shame is its evil twin. Shame comes right along the heels of guilt, and shame says, not only did you do something bad, you are bad. You yourself are bad. You're worthless. You're no good for nothing. There's nothing good in you. You're irredeemable. You can't be saved. You've done something so dirty, so unclean, so horrible that you need to hide. You need to hide. You need to be in the dark. Don't go to the light. And so shame and guilt cripple humanity and they do it today. And listen, there is not a human being on this earth, atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, you name them, roll them out. 
And all, every human being from the time we're barely conscious as a little kids, if you have children, you know. My little grandson, Logan, I mean, he'd, you know, we'd tell him, go get in bed. And he would go into his bedroom. A few seconds later, he'd come out and he'd look at me like this. And he would go like this. And he'd just stand and look at me. I'd go, go, you get back in bed. And he'd go back in bed like this. And a few minutes later, he'd be at the door again like this. I mean, it's hilarious. We know they want So what, you know, it's that face. They put the face. You think they don't know? They know. They know. If you don't believe in the total depravity of man, just have a child. You will learn. <laughs> All right. They freely chose. Now, a lot of you, you know, we say, well, do we have free will? Do we not have free will? Come at 9 o'clock. I'll clear it all up for you. They had free will. They had the ability to choose. And they used that ability, that freedom, to absolutely rob themselves of the ability to choose again, freely. They couldn't. And we don't. Guilt and shame. But look at, now we're going to look at, very quickly, we're going to look at this magnificent, I'm telling you folks, this is This could transform the way you see your life. Honestly, if you just listen to God's words. He has three words for them. Three. And they're in the form of songs. He sings these to them. Now, I don't know what that was like (laughs) after what happened, but they are poetry. They are songs. They're, They're rhythmic. They could have been chanted. They could have been spoken. I don't know. But anyway, he does this. Let's look at the first word. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God. They didn't see Him. You can't see Him because why? He's invisible. But they heard Him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from His presence. Presence in Hebrew means His his face. They hid from His face among the trees. Now listen. Presence of God was a huge thing in the ancient world. It is in almost every culture today, except even in modern, even modern people. You know, there's this great image of a, uh, of a woman on Wall Street, and she's in the lotus position, and she's got her hands like this. With the, you know, she's making the chakras and the connections, spiritual connections. She's in the lotus position, and she's got this transcendent look on her face, and she's sitting on Wall Street, and she's got a laptop, and it's a MacBook, and it's sitting on her lap. And you can say, that's the world we live in. It's a world that is technologically uh, advanced, and yet we want to touch the transcendent. We want something beyond, something out there. We know. We hear His voice. We see Him. Romans chapter 1 said, we are without excuse. We know He's there. And so we replace Him and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator. And then Paul says, who's blessed forever? I mean, come on. Wake up. We do the great exchange. We take in truth for a lie. And every human being does that. We even are subject to it ourselves as Christians. And look at the profound, it's almost amazing, the irony of this verse should just jump out at you. Where are they hiding? They're hiding behind trees. Who made the trees? Who made the tree? God made the tree. See, a child knows. Thank you, little guy, whoever, girl. Brilliant. God made the trees. What are you hiding behind them for? Really? This is how far sin took them. 
well, we, maybe we can get behind this tree. He won't see us. The trees He gave them, the trees that were to feed them, the trees that were to provide fruit for them, they're hiding behind them. And look at the first word. The first word is the word of grace. Where are you? Not I see you. Could have said either one, and you better put that into your mind right now because he said, where are you? And people will say they'll want to get real theological and they'll say, oh, didn't God know where they were? Of course He knew where they were. Where are you? Where are you? Dr. Kidner said he must, listen, this is stunning, folks. If, if, if we stopped right here, if I just told you this and you took it into your heart, you would be a different person today. He must draw them out of hiding rather than drive them out. You see, he could have said, what kind of idiots are you? you, you really? Are you really going to hide behind the tree? I see you. Get out here and face what you did. Instead, which what I would say, I said it to my kids, get out of here, I see you hiding behind the curtains. You know, you, I see the crumbs all over the floor. No, where are you? A word of grace, a word of compassion, a word of love, a word of, of kindness. And so let me say some things about grace very quickly. And listen, if you don't listen to anything else, you better listen to this because there's a lot of misconceptions about grace. And I'm going to try to clear up at least some of it right now. First of all, grace is not, 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 in any way, grace is not leniency. Grace is not just simply saying, ollie, ollie, oxen free, okay, everything's fine, you, you know, you're off the hook. That is not grace. That's a complete distortion of grace. Grace is not leniency. There are consequences. You're going to see them in a moment. So grace is not leniency. Grace also is not free. Get rid of that idea that's a crazy Christian something. I don't know what it is. It's nutty. Grace is not free. Forgiveness is never free. And God's love is not unconditional. There is no such thing. It doesn't exist. Now I know what we mean when we say He loves us unconditionally. I understand that. But when we start pouring those words into that, we, we start coming away with the wrong answer. Grace is not leniency. There are consequences. Grace is not free. Somebody's going to pay. And love is not unconditional. When God chose to say, where are you? The condition, the thing that moved Him was Him. His compassion, His love. Do you remember all the times in the New Testament where Jesus is going along and what did it say? He was moved with compassion. What was moving him? Yes, he saw poverty and, and sickness and death, and that was true. It was there. But you know, a lot of people walked by those poor people, those sick people, those deaf and dumb and blind and lepers and all that. Walked right by. What was different about him? You want to know what was different about him? Him. 
him different. There are plenty of blind people. You're going to have the poor with you always, Jesus said. He's what's different. That's the condition. Him. Where are you? Not I see you. Grace is not those things. But listen, grace is this. And let me be very clear. Grace is transformational and grace is creative. If you taste grace, if you've really been touched, if you've been in the gutter, if you were the prostitute at Jesus' feet, weeping, uh, uh, gushing with tears, and wiping His feet with your hair, then you know what grace is. When you've been in the gutter and He picks you up and He folds you in, Simply because of Him, not because of you. Simply because He loves you just because He loves you. When He takes you in like that, it will transform you. And if you're not transformed, you better come talk to me. That has got to crash in on you and grow and grow. And and you know, it doesn't just come overnight. It takes years. I've been a Christian for years and every day His mercy is new every morning. And sometimes I don't get it. Sometimes I live like I'm a nut. And not very often. And, but other times I do get it, and it just paralyzes me with love and fear and adoration. I think, why? Why? Why would you do that for me? And it directs me to Him, not to me. It's because you're great, because you're good. Praise your name forever. You see where praise comes from, where worship comes from. Grace is transformational. Grace is creative. In fact, we call it new birth. New creation. I've been born again. Amazing. Look at her response though. And this is what you need to see. Human beings have been doing this. This is nothing new. I don't care what religion you belong to. I don't care what every religion will, because this is it. Their response is to hide. They have guilt and shame. To separate themselves from God. To run from Him, not to Him, to alienate themselves. Why, when I, I serve Holy, Holy Communion the first time to our little ones, you know, when they come for their first communion, I always tell them, look them right in the eye, and I said, no matter what happens to you in your life from this day forward, always run to Jesus. Have you heard me say that, Christ the King? Yes. Run to Jesus. I don't care what, don't, don't say I'm going to, pro- don't promise anything, don't say anything, just run with all your might to Jesus, run, fall down at His feet and grab a hold, and He will receive you. What if I've sinned 20 times? Well, 20 times. Well, what about 50? 50 times. What about a million times? I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid. That's what it sounded like in Hebrew, it was this, this, this pounding refrain, I did, I did, me, 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 I hid, I heard, I not one way. You know what they should have said? I repent. I repent. I trust you. I will follow you. Amazing. The fabric of the human heart. Listen, folks, the fabric of the human heart is to run from God, not to God. And what we call that in the Bible is being dead in your sins. Being dead in sin. We run from Him, not to Him. Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem to be crucified. 
And as he topped the hill and he was looking down at the city, the Bible says he stopped and he began to weep. And he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone those I have sent to you, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, desolate, and you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We don't say, I repent, forgive me. We say, no. And Francis Schaeffer said, we become a glorious ruin. Martin Luther said, we are in curvatus in se. We are curved inside. We, we, we become so selfish that we can't even do anything good without thinking of ourselves. So parents drive their kids like slave drivers so that they will make all A's and, and be hyper above achievers. That's the world we live in today. You crack the hip whip and your kids got to go and make straight A's and get into the best college and do all this. And it's not for them. Don't lie to yourself. You're doing it for you. And I know some of you are going to get mad and say, oh no, I'm doing it for my kids. There you go. Or the husband like me, I worked 80, 90 hours a week. I thought I was great. I worked and worked and worked. I brought paychecks home and I gave them to Monty V and I worked and worked and worked. And I bowed at the altar of money and success and sacrificed my children and my wife on that altar. And all the time thought, oh, what a good provider. We all do it. Our incurvatus and say we are all curved inside. We can't get over it. And this is a way out. Look at the second word. First word is grace. Second word. Who told you you were naked? Verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? Why is he asking him that? Don't just read over it and say, oh no, what's that? No, think about Why did he say that? Who told you? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you? Why didn't they answer the question, yes, I ate? Please help me. Close my eyes. Save me from what I just did. Do we ever do that? Do we ever actually do that? Just buckle and go down on the ground and say, God, I made a mistake. Help me. No. That's not what our parents did and that's not what we do. Look at the response. And, and if you need to know what the response is, it's a simple phrase. Self-justification. self salvation blame shifting shifting blame to others and then to god this is classic the the adam brilliant man i mean he's already lost half his mind half his brain and we've barely got any of it back fellows the woman you gave me she gave me and i ate so it wasn't really my fault the woman you gave me, she gave me, and I ate. I mean, I was just laying there and she was dropping them into my mouth. 
In other words, it's not really my fault. It's yours. Now let me be very clear. If you have something bad happen in your life or you're not getting something you want or things are not going your way, I guarantee you that in the secret recesses, you probably won't say it to anybody because it's too darn embarrassing, but somewhere in the back of your mind you're saying, how come God's doing me this way? Oh, never mind the junk that you can... I mean, we could write a book about your life, yeah? I could write a book about my life. Never mind that. Let's blame Him. Couldn't He have made it better for me? Couldn't He have done this? Right away we start blaming God. We don't ever stop to think of all the glory that He has given us and how we have misused it. No, we blame Him. The woman you gave me. She gave me. I ate. Ah, you know, like it wasn't really my fault. But God does something really amazing. He turns to the to the to the to the woman and he says, "What is this you have done again? Wh- why is he asking these questions? Ask yourself why. What is this you've done? And listen to the woman, ladies, you're not off the hook. Oh." I didn't have enough information. The serpent deceived me. I got fooled. Poor me. And I made a remark last week about a dumb blonde. People got mad. You know, it's a euphemism. I'm not making fun of blonde people. I have, I'm married to one, and she's a better theologian than I am. So that's not the point. The point is she acts like she didn't know enough or that she didn't know, and she had relativized God's word. She had minimized his word. She'd said too much and she said too little. And now she wants to blame the serpent and shift the blame. I really didn't know. I was fooled. And how many of us, some, some calamity comes crashing into your life. I don't care what it is. You're in a car wreck, God forbid. You're out there, you pull out under wrestler, bang, a car hits you. Everybody's okay, but your car's messed up. First thing you say is what? What did I do? Why did this happen? Or you do something stupid and you're getting the consequence. You don't pay your taxes. And the IRS shows up at your door with handcuffs. Off you go. I didn't have enough information. I didn't know. They're still going to put you in jail. You see, these are the excuses that humans make. Not just Christians. Human beings. Look at God's final word. This is stunning. I hope you listen. There's no dialogue with Satan. This should tell you something. And in the Q&A next Sunday, I'll be happy to answer. Uh, There's no dialogue. Only blistering, absolutely blistering judgment to the serpent, doom, and also in this statement to the serpent, a surprising gospel. That's the first place we hear the gospel is the doom and judgment we hear on the serpent. Look at uh, verse 14 and 15. Cursed are you above all livestock and beasts. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and hers. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Same word. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Head was the place where you lived. 
uh, heel was the place of your humanity. And so to crush the head was to kill and utterly destroy. To bruise the heel was simply to touch the humanness, the, the humanity of the, of the seed that he's talking about here. He gave us, and this is no small thing, folks. He gave humanity the gift of enmity. He put enmity between us and the serpents. You know, he could have said, think about it. He could have said, hey, you chose the devil. Good for you. I'm done. I'm going over to Mars and create a planet. You are on your own. I'm done with you. No. I know what I'll do. You made pals with this snake. I'm going to make him odious to you. Everybody's going to be afraid of snakes from now on. Serpents. Dragons. These slithery things. All of them. You know. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. This gift of enmity, folks, you can't say enough about it. And, and I can't really get into it. There's not enough time. But let me just say this. To the woman, he tells her, first of all, he did not curse the people. I read a commentary this week, and the guy said, the commentator said, he cursed Adam and Eve. He did not curse Adam and Eve. He cursed the serpent, and he cursed the ground. He did not curse human beings. Don't, don't go for that. He loves you. He doesn't want to curse you. All right. He said, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. What this means, and there's a lot to that. We just don't have time. Look, childbearing, which should be a joy a lot of times to women, is a sorrow because you have children and they grow up. They become teenagers. And then you give them to the Lord thinking that, you know, I'm going to give my child to the Lord. He'll take care of things for me. And he gives them back to you. Children can be wonderful and they can also be, it can also be painful. Even if you've got the greatest kids in the world, and we do, we have great kids in our church. Even if you have wonderful children, you're worried, you're nervous about them. And then they have children and you're worried about the grandkids. And I mean, it's all this, this pain. Oh, how can I protect them from the world? How can I nurture them? It's a great fear. How can I help them? Especially if they've you know, got a problem. And your desire will be contrary to your husband. You know, come on. We, but I don't know. Men and women, just we, do you understand your wives, men? Yeah, there you go. You ought to be kidding. Yeah, I'm not kidding. That's, that's the funny thing about it. And you want to know something, ladies? You don't understand us either. So nanny, nanny, boo-boo. You know, we think, oh, women are so hard. To, men are a mess, as you will see. So there's going to be tension and there is tension and there's going to be uh, fighting and there's going to be injustice and we're going to, you know, patriarchal societies and women are oppressed even today. I mean, on and on and on, come to the Q&A. All right, look at 17 and 19. Man, because you listen to your wife, cursed is the ground because if you in pain, you'll eat all the days of your life, thorn, thistles, and plants of the field. You notice no more fruit for you. Thorns and thistles and plants from the field. You're going to have to get out there and work hard for your food. You're not going to just be able to pick it off and eat it like the fruit. No more fruit. By the sweat of your face, you'll return to the ground because you're dust and dust you'll return. For men, and every one of you men knows this, work can be infinitely difficult. 
way more difficult than it needs to be. We even make it difficult. It can crush us. We're so unsatisfied. Something like 85% of people are unhappy in their work. And then at the end of the day, you, you, know, you, you file for Social Security and you find out I'm not getting that much. All this... I worked 20 years like a slave to my business. 20 years. And I built my business, built my business. And I sold it for pittance. Hardly any money at all. I couldn't get anything for it. But I was so desperate, I sold it. And we moved to Florida to go to seminary. And today it's gone. There's no record of it. The guys that I sold it to from San Antonio, they just closed it down in four years. And all that. And I'm telling you a personal story. All that. And it's dust. Don't let it happen to you. Work is infinitely more difficult. Our, our helper, our wives, our partners, we're often in conflict with, where there's often tension. And life can feel unproductive, frustrating, exhausting, and unfulfilling. So where in the world is hope? Well, you know, it's in verse 20. I didn't read it. Look at it. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. Now, this is interesting. It's not because she's the mother of all people who breathe. She's the mother of those who have life in them. You see, something happened, and I don't, I, I don't have time to explain it, but I'd love to talk to you more about it. If you want to do that in the Q&A, we can. What does that mean, Eve becomes the mother of the living? You're going to see in the next few weeks what that means. It's incredible. Why didn't he name her the mother of those who are going to die and become dust? Why? Why did that? People say, well, was Adam saved? I don't know. Read it for yourself. Read verse 20. What does it look like to you? It looks like to me this man was redeemed and had hope for the future and he names his, which was significant, he names her Eve, mother of the living, because he knew someone was going to come who would live to die for the sins of of the people. Now he didn't have it in full, the full blown expression like we do, but he understood enough, just enough, to have hope and name his wife Eve, the mother of the living. Listen to how, you see, it isn't until the New Testament we finally start to see the pieces coming together, and oh my goodness, are they mind blowing. Let me just read it to you and have time to just listen. This is how the Apostle Paul explained it. It's stunning. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us so the blessing to Abraham might come to us through Christ Jesus. So by faith, we might receive the promise of Holy Spirit. So in Christ, listen to this, it's, in Christ Jesus we are all children of God through faith for all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. 
all are one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, listen, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And he didn't say seeds as to many. He said seeds as in one. And that one is Christ. Since the children have flesh and blood, he shared the same so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those who are in slavery, like Adam and Eve and you and me, free us from our fear of death. You know, I hope that you will think in terms of Jesus Christ They didn't know it was Jesus. In fact, they thought it was going to be Abel. But it wasn't Abel because Cain killed him. And then they had Seth. And they thought Seth will be the one. But it wasn't Seth. And Seth had a son named Enosh. And they thought, well, maybe Enosh will be the one. But it wasn't Enosh because Enosh did start the tradition of calling on the name of the Lord. And so you'll see in a few weeks... Then men started calling on the name of the Lord. You see, they started looking forward. What were they looking forward to? The seed. Someone. We don't know who it is. We don't know. But He's going to come. And He is going to crush the head of the serpent and rescue me from this slavery, this death. We don't know who He is. But we know He will do it. And Paul and the New Testament writers, all of them said, Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent so that you and I could live. And he just asks us one thing, just like that second word of God, will you trust me? Who told you? He gave him a chance. He gave him the opportunity to say, we did it. Help us. Will you do it now? Trust him. I pray you will. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand these things. Our souls are filled with darkness at times and we need your light to break in. And I know that uh, there are folks here that are suffering with great trials and tribulations in their life. And I pray, Father, help us, please. We lay everything at your feet. What hope do we have apart from you? There's not enough money in the world to heal the sicknesses of this world. There's not enough power, not enough technology. Only you can heal the human heart. And we pray to you. For Christ's sake and in his name, he's the seed that came into the world. Amen.